Hey, it's Luke, and you're listening to the Tea Talks Podcast. Once a month, I invite people to come over to my house in Atlanta and have some friends give short talks on anything they find interesting. We sip on tea, eat Pop-Tarts, and cultivate a community of curiosity. These are those talks being recorded live in my living room with my friends. Hope you enjoy. But then later that same day, I come home that night, and there are police surrounding the home that I live in. And I walk up to the police who are holding a battering ram in front of our front door. And I have no idea what's going on, but all I can think is, we still use battering rams? (laughs) So I have a confession. It's actually something I've wanted to say since the first episode. And something, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you've probably already picked up on. And it's this. I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. When it comes to producing this podcast, I just sit at my desk, mic in one hand and a cup of tea in the other, faking it with absolutely no sight of making it. But it's fun. And it's only possible because, although I'm no sound engineer, I am good at something else. You see, I have a knack for filling my living room and my life with people much more brilliant than me. And one of those people is Jason Diba. I met Jason a few years ago at Passion City Church, and I've had the honor of being one of the countless people he has invested his time and creativity into. Jason has generously showed me how to think differently and deeply. And in an age where creativity can be celebrated as the tool to make much of yourself, your brand, your ego, and image, Jason rebels by using creativity to make much of others. And I think the best artists are those who help others make sense of things and Jason helps others make sense of their souls. And I know he's done that for me over and over again, so I'm absolutely thrilled to have had him in my living room to do the same for others, and now for you over these next 30 minutes. And if you don't believe me about his brilliance and generosity, then you can hear for yourself, because the next 30 minutes of this episode were completely mixed by Jason himself. Like I said, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing, but brilliant people around me do. So, here's Jason Dibo with the talk and the production. Enjoy. In 2013, there's this major breakthrough in the world of particle physics. At one of the largest particle colliders in the world, scientists observe for the, the very first time what's called the Higgs boson. They'd been specifically looking for this type of boson for, for several decades because by finding it, they could prove the existence of what's called the Higgs field which is one of the many invisible fields that is part of the standard model in particle physics. Now, for those of you who don't know anything about particle physics and you don't care to know anything about particle physics, let me just tell you that the wonderful thing about the Higgs field is that it explains one of the most basic questions in science, which is where does the nature of mass come from? Where does mass come from? Like, most of us would know, we, we know why an elephant weighs more than a rabbit. Like, that's obvious to us. But if you were to break down the elephant and the rabbit and everything else in the universe down to molecules and then down to atoms and down to uh, subatomic elements, down to, like, photons and electrons and things that can't be broken down any further, then the question becomes, 
why does the photon and the electron weigh what it weighs? Like, what law of nature is dictating what the mass is for the most elementary particles in the universe? And the answer is the Higgs field. The Higgs field. It's this field that exists invisibly everywhere equally. It's an infinite field. And as each of these elementary particles, electrons and neutrinos and photons, as each of them are passing through the Higgs field, each experience a different level of resistance, and that determines their mass. So a, a photon experiences no resistance when it goes through the Higgs field, and therefore it has no mass. But an electron, it experiences a, a fixed level of resistance, and therefore it has a fixed level of mass. In a neutrino, all the different types of neutrinos, they each experience a fixed level of resistance and collision in the Higgs field, and therefore they have a fixed level of mass. So in, in simplified terms, the more struggle that a particle experiences in the Higgs field, the more weight it has. The more tension, the more value. Every time I think about this scientific finding of the Higgs field since 2013, I think about something that had happened to me a couple years earlier. Specifically, one night where I'm standing in a hospital parking lot at one in the morning holding a knife in my hand. It's 1 a.m. on the morning that I'm about to ask my girlfriend to marry me. I get into my car, I'm driving home, I'm exhausted physically and emotionally, but I know that I need to stay awake and I need to write down what I'm going to say when I propose to my girlfriend and that if I don't do this, I'm going to regret it when I wake up a few hours later. So during the drive, I make a note on my phone and I write down these words. I say, everybody thinks they know what they want in life. But rarely do they believe that God could so wildly exceed their imaginations. But that's what you've done. You've wildly exceeded my imaginations. All my good intentions aren't nearly as good as the way you make me feel. All my dreams are jealous of the joy I found in you. And now, I'm thankful for all the things in my life that have gone wrong just so this one thing could go right. See, the reason that I'm at the hospital at one in the morning is that I had been arguing with the nurses in the ER department. I was wondering what was taking them so long to see Bobby and why weren't they telling me the plan for what was going to happen to Bobby? And they just assumed I was planning to stay all night with Bobby, but I'm thinking I need to go home because in a few hours I'm about to ask this girl to marry me and they didn't realize what a massive inconvenience it was that their medical disinterest was causing on literally the rest of my life. And so around 1 a.m. in the morning, a nurse in the ER says to me, how do you know Bobby? And I say, I met Bobby a couple weeks ago. Just prior to that, one of my roommates 
had committed the unforgivable sin. He had bailed on his lease without finding someone else to fill the spot. And so I was put on the spot, me and my roommates, to have to find somebody else. And we asked and we begged and we pleaded for someone to please come take this spot, but no one would take it. And so we did what all desperate people do. We went on Craigslist. Enter Bobby. Bobby replies to my Craigslist ad. And he says that he's moving to Tennessee, where we live, for the very first time. And he would love to move in with three other guys. And a couple days later, he shows up at the house. He pays his first month of rent in cash. Me and him, we go, we grab a meal. We hang out for a couple hours. And I think, okay, cool. Bobby's my new roommate. But then, about 10 days after he moves in, I decide to come home from work early one day. And I'm on the first floor of our home. And I can hear Bobby upstairs, and he's talking to someone. He's arguing with someone. And he, he's he's starting to yell at this person. And then they're yelling back, and, and it's getting louder. And it, then there's crying. And I'm thinking that Bobby had just told me when the day that he moved in that he had just broken up with his ex-girlfriend in the past. And so I'm, I'm hearing something going on up on the second floor. And I think, I don't want to hear all this so I just slowly back out and go away from the house. But then later that same day, I come home that night, and there are police surrounding the home that I live in. And I walk up to the police who are holding a battering ram in front of our front door, and I have no idea what's going on, but all I can think is, we still use battering rams? (laughs) I mean... Feels like a very medieval time way of getting into a house nowadays. So I walk up to the officer and I say, what's going on? And the officer replies, we got calls from the neighbors that there was a man hanging out the second story window of the house, screaming profanities at the sky for several hours. Do you know this man? And I think, Bobby. So I suggest to the officer, I say, let's not use the battering ram, Camelot, okay? I have the keys. So I let the officers in. The emergency medical technicians come with. They go into the home. They go up to Bobby's room. They calm him down. And then they figure out three things. One, Bobby is in a delusional state. But he's able to talk to the EMTs. And he tells them that he hasn't slept in 72 hours. Two, the argument that I had overheard earlier in the day between Bobby and whoever it was he was yelling at was not an argument between Bobby and whoever he was yelling at. It was an argument between Bobby and also Bobby. There were multiple voices coming from Bobby. And then three, perhaps the most bizarre discovery of all, is that when they go into Bobby's room, they don't find him lying in bed They don't find him sitting on a futon or a chair. They don't find him watching TV or hanging a picture on his wall. They don't find him with a a bed or a chair or a TV or a futon or a picture because there's nothing in his room. There's just Bobby. For the 10 days that he lived with us, we had, as all males do, neglected just to go wander into our roommate's room. And so we didn't know that when Bobby came, he brought nothing with him. It was just Bobby in the room. So to recap, there's a man from Craigslist (laughs) 
living in our home, who pays his rent in cash, who is speaking in multiple voices, who has terrified our neighbors for multiple hours by screaming profanities at the sky from the second floor window, who has no bed to sleep in, and who hasn't slept in three days. And so I suggest to the medical staff, it sounds like he needs to go to the hospital. And they say, yeah, but he doesn't feel like it. So we're going to let him stay here. Which to me seemed, at the worst, negligent. And at the very best, extremely inconvenient for me, who has to now sleep in this house with this guy through the night. Which I do. The next morning, I wake up. I'm still alive. Uh, I go to work. And I come home early so that I'll have time to confront Bobby about everything that had just happened the night before. And when I do, I find Bobby still in a state of delusion. Despite that the EMT workers had told him to go to sleep and had actually given him some medicine, Bobby had not gone to sleep. Instead, Bobby had stayed up and had started reading the book of Revelation and had started drawing demon angels in a notebook that he had found. Now, I don't know about you, but when the guy off Craigslist is reading Revelation and drawing the demon angels in the notebook, that's the line for me. Like, that's where things cross over. Like, that, I never knew where the line was, but now I know that there's the line for me in my life is the Revelation drawing the demon angels in the notebook, the whole thing. And so I say to Bobby, I say, you need to go to the hospital. He replies, I don't have a car. And I reply, of course you don't have a car. You don't have, you don't have anything. Get in my car. I am going to take you to the hospital. Now, this day, this day, when I am taking Bobby to the hospital is the day before I'm going to ask my girlfriend to marry me. And for this proposal, I had hired a band, a string section, I had composed original music, I had rented a barn, I had built a stage for the band with my own two hands, I had employed an entire film team, an audio team, a catering team, a decoration team, I had invited family and friends to drive in from out of state, and instead of spending that day finalizing all of these detailed arrangements for what is going to be the most important milestone of my life up until this point, I'm in a car with Bobby. And Bobby is seeing things. His head is whipping to the left and then to the right. And he's yelling, do you see that? Do you see that? To clear blue skies. Do you see the sky opening? They're coming. 30 minute car ride of Bobby seeing things. When I arrive at the hospital, I coax Bobby into the emergency room triage, and they realize that he's in a state of mania. And so they decide they're gonna place him in one of the patient rooms. And while they're getting him in the gowns, they find a pocket knife on him, and they give it to me in order to take it back to my car. So I do that, and then I come back and I sit with Bobby, a 23-year-old guy who I barely even know. And I watch him lay in in his bed, in his hospital bed, his body twisting and contorting, and he's screaming as his mind continues to devolve deeper 
and deeper into a state of delusion. Now at this point, I wanted to call someone for help. But I already knew that Bobby didn't know anyone in Tennessee. He'd broken up with his girlfriend some time ago, and it wasn't good. And three, that Bobby didn't keep in touch with any of his family. So I waited. We arrived at 6 o'clock. At 7 o'clock, no doctor has come. At 8 o'clock, no doctor has come. At 9 o'clock, nobody. 10 o'clock, nobody. 11 o'clock, nobody. Midnight, nobody. Now we're into the day when I'm going to propose, but instead of focusing on that, I've been in a room now for six hours watching a young man being tortured by his own mind, and the ER nurses are doing nothing to help him. And so I begin to get upset. And so at 1 a.m., when the nurse asks me, how do you know Bobby? I tell her all of this. I tell her he has no friends. He has no family. He doesn't even have a bed. But he's here now, and he's with me. This is, this is all very inconvenient. But I can't leave until I know he's going to be taken care of. And the nurse says, we'll take care of him. So I'm standing in a hospital parking lot at one in the morning, holding Bobby's knife in my hand. It's 1 a.m. on the day that I'm planning to ask my girlfriend to marry me. And I get into my car to begin driving home. I'm exhausted physically and emotionally but I know I will regret it if I don't write down what I want to say to my girlfriend. So I write it down. I get home, I go to sleep, I wake up a few hours later, the musicians come, the film team comes, the friends and family from out of state all come. And that night I get down on one knee and I say, and now I'm thankful for all the things in my life that have gone wrong, just so this one thing could go right. And then I asked Kara to marry me. And she says, yes. One of the things I've been fascinated with for the last several years is the development of tension within a storyline, particularly within films. And so to study this, I've started taking some of the, the best-reviewed films of all time and writing out a synopsis of each main scene. And then in each main scene, I ask, uh, what is the primary tension, and then what's the resolution of that tension? And what I've discovered is that in the best films, often they will introduce a tension in scene one, and that the resolution to that tension from scene one is not really a resolution at all, but instead it's just, an, it's just that another tension comes in that overshadows what the first tension was. And so that's the resolution. It's not that it gets resolved, it's that another tension comes in and overtakes it. And so what keeps the viewer interested is not a continual sense of resolution, but actually a continual sense of mounting tension. And so what makes us uncomfortable is actually what keeps us watching. So, 
if, uh, let's say you take The Lion King, for example. The opening scene is Simba's birth, and the tension in this scene is that Scar doesn't show up to the ceremony because he's jealous of Mufasa. And then the second scene occurs with Simba being childish and naive, and he ends up in an elephant graveyard. And this scene, the tension there, seems to be resolved when Mufasa comes along and saves him and then tells him all about the kings and the stars. Um, but what's actually happening is, is just a setup for the next scene, which is that it takes the tension of Scar's jealousy from scene one, and it combines it with the uh, Simba's naivete from scene two, and those are used together as the tension for scene three in order to kill Mufasa, and it works beautifully. And then after that, Simba runs away, tension. Scar takes the throne and hyenas pillage the Pride Land, tension. Meanwhile, Simba kind of relinquishes his uh, royal identity in order for a life of uh, laissez-faire, which is funny, but it's also a tension in the story. And then even after Nala and Rafiki come and they persuade uh, Simba to come home, the tension of Simba overthrowing Scar is again overshadowed by yet another tension, which is that Simba has to confess that he's responsible for the death of Mufasa, his father, which up, at, up until this point, is actually the most kind of horrifying tension of them all because he's having to say it in front of his mother and family. But luckily, it's a Disney movie. So Scar makes the classic villain blunder and admits to Simba in a whisper that he actually did it, which was completely unnecessary for him to do, but he did it anyway. And that, of all things, becomes the motivation for Simba to rise up, fight back, defeat Scar, restore the kingdom, and bring about the ultimate resolution, which is the birth of Simba's own son, the future king in the circle of life. And that's why we love Lion King, is because it's the perfect sequence of tensions leading up to the perfect resolution. Often we describe movies that we like as having a perfect or having a great ending. But the more that I look at it and think about it, it's probably more likely that our satisfaction is the result of a greater sense and series of tensions that have been building up, each one building on the other, each tension, each struggle adding more and more weight to the ending. Like, like subatomic elements gaining value through resistance. Since that day, the day that began in the hospital parking lot at 1 a.m. and ended with my girlfriend agreeing to be my wife, I've, I've learned this lesson of mounting tension over and over again. So often the way we talk about, about love and about marriage centers around this idea of romance and things getting better and getting more communal and getting easier and getting lighter. Really, if the way we talk about it is we talk about the happy ending quality of it. And those are those are not wrong, those are all true, and those are great, and those are the lovely parts of love. But they're not the only parts, and they're not the heaviest parts. So much of love does not look lovely. It's plain, it's forgettable, it does not involve sex, it's repetitive and routine, 
and has a high possibility of being downright annoying or aggravating. In my household, it looks like me coming home every day and playing piano for 20 minutes. Now at first, this sounds very idyllic and very romantic, um, that my wife would come home and hear me hear music filling the house from the piano. And I'm sure it was the first time she came home and heard that, especially because I'm a good piano player. May have been great the first time, and probably maybe even the tenth time, maybe even the, the hundredth time. Like, that may have been very sweet, very nice. But after eight years of hearing someone come home and play the piano for 20 minutes, the hacking and the practicing and the working through all the wrong notes and doing it right after work and the question of who's going to make dinner and who's going to pick up our son from childcare and, and can't, wouldn't it be nice for it just to be quiet for once in here? It's like, it's no longer romantic for my wife to hear me play piano for 20 minutes every single day. Frankly, there are times when it's, for her, just inconvenient. And she could tell me to stop she could tell me to change. She could tell me there are, there are other things that I could and should be doing. But because my wife knows how much I enjoy sitting down and playing the piano for 20 minutes every day, and because she loves me, the expression of that love is her embracing the inconvenience. And this is not easy. It's not easy for her. It's not easy for me. It's not easy for you. And it's not, it's not easy because, especially because we live in a society that worships convenience. A culture that glorifies the notion of having endless options so that if at any point we become tired of anything that's in front of us, be it an album or a TV show, an online conversation, a community, a theology, or even a marriage— that we can just bail out on it at any time and justify it under the banner of, well, that just wasn't for me. As if upholding our emotional entitlement was the supreme personal achievement of modern day experience. And meanwhile, we could be making great stories of our lives if we were willing to realize that all of these mounting tensions, all the inconveniences of losing time losing money, losing sleep, and even losing our sanity on other people who need us may be the only unique opportunity that we have to show them that they're loved. It's not a bad thing that, that our world is getting faster and smarter and more economic and consolidated and compact. This is not a talk against convenience. Rather, it's, it's an appeal for the beauty and richness of being inconvenienced. So Bobby, whose real name is not Bobby, Bobby ends up getting up, getting out of the hospital a few days after I've proposed to Kara. He'd been diagnosed with PTSD from his time serving in the army a year earlier. So while fighting a war that his country had asked him to fight, he had been injured by an explosion, then honorably discharged. And now, as a 23-year-old, he had a lifetime of nightmares ahead of him. And if you were to ask me how I knew if Bobby loved his country, 
I could tell you that the proof is that he suffered greatly for it. He had embraced a terrible inconvenience for the rest of us. Bobby came back and he lived with me and my roommates for one more week before he relapsed into another state of delirium. And so in what first felt like a a bit of deja vu, I got him in the car, but I took him to a different hospital, this time to the VA hospital, who turned out to be infinitely more helpful than the previous one. The Veterans Administration helped him move to another state where he had friends waiting for him, got connected with a good doctor who could see him regularly and lined him up with a job. And I assumed that all these things were the resolution to the film that I had just been living through. That the lonely soldier gets broken by war, but then he gets help and then he flies home to a family. And that seemed like a pretty good ending to me. But then one day Bobby texted me out of the blue and his text message said, Hey, bro, keep that pocket knife. It's been a really, really nice one, and it's been to war with me. It's kind of cool to me, at least. I got it right before my head injury from the roadside bomb in Iraq. My doctor just scheduled a neurosurgery. He thinks there might be something wrong with my eyes. Thanks for being there for me. You were the only friend I had. I still go back to that text message pretty often. And when I do, I think about being down on one knee. And I think about saying, now I'm thankful for all the things in my life that have gone wrong, just so this one thing could go right. I think about Rafiki holding up the son of Simba and all the tensions mounting up for that one great movie moment. I think about my wife. I think about inconvenience being one of the most remarkable acts of love. And I think about all of us, particles, moving through the universe, our value determined by the tension, by the struggle, by the collisions that are made in an infinite field. Thank you. so much jason for the talk and for the best produced show of t talks short history and as always thank you all for listening if you've enjoyed listening to t talks then please leave us a review it goes much further than you think and stay tuned for the next live recording and more episodes but until then stay curious friends